If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Judges chapter 3. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in our study through the book of Judges. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'd be glad to hand you a Bible so you can follow along. And we'd also be glad for you to keep that Bible. It's, uh, it's our gift to you. I uh, just want to mention, I think you guys noticed, we have a few more chairs in the room now. Um, God's moving in our church, and we're growing. And if you're here and, and new today, we added some chairs just for you today to be here. And so it uh, changes our configuration a little bit. We'll have to be a little more considerate to let people kind of in or move in so people can have a seat. we got a little wider row here in the front or in the middle. And uh, we also moved later in our service, um, we're going to have communion together. And we moved a couple of the communion tables that usually are kind of on this front wall over to the side walls. So don't get in a traffic jam today. Um, I know it's going to be a little different. Just merge together and uh, we'll get through this. We'll figure it out in a couple of weeks together. But I really appreciate we have a group of guys that come out. Um, we had an event here yesterday afternoon. And we had a group of, I guess it's guys, I think it's guys, um, people, volunteers who came out and reset all the chairs in here this morning so we could have a place to sit and it wouldn't be a jumbled up mess. So I do appreciate uh, them. Uh, as Micah mentioned, yeah, let's give them a hand. Uh, as Micah mentioned, we're, uh, we're sort of on a beeline towards Easter. Um, Easter is March 31st this year. And uh, we're excited to celebrate with you. A lot of things happening, uh, moving towards Easter and the weeks leading up to Easter. Uh, spring picnic is the week before. We'll have an egg hunt. We'll have Easter jam that week. It's going to be a fun time. Uh, the week before that, we're going to have our baby dedication, which is our habit. Uh, but I also wanted to mention this uh, four weeks of prayer. Um, to get signed up for that, all you have to do is uh, text the uh, word, what is it? Uh, TRC, text the, the letters TRC to the number that's up here, 252-632-6650, uh, uh, and you can join us. Um, we won't send you a bunch of texts, but probably two or three each week, just some prayer prompts that help us think about Easter and kind of what we're talking about as a church and the things that we have uh, going on, well, the things that we want to be praying about as we move towards uh, Easter Sunday at the end of this month. Let me also say that's a way for you to stay connected with us, but you don't have to. Um, you can stop that after this month, or you can keep getting some of these. Uh, we'll send some updates throughout the year, different events and things. Uh, it's the same number, same text service that we use for that. And um, we're, we're working towards an Easter offering this year. We're going to um, take up an Easter offering that will go to build wells, clean water wells in Kenya. And we'll be talking more about that, but I just want to mention that this morning. And I also want to mention, it's the first year we've done a sunrise service for Easter, uh, 7 a.m. Uh, we did look at the, it'll be just after sunrise. We want it to be a little bit of light, but maybe as the sun is rising, looks like, per the calendar. Uh, we're planning an outdoor service. Um, it will have all of the elements that we have here on a Sunday morning in our normal services. So that could be your Easter service if that's what you want to come to. But it will also be a little different. So if you wanted to come back and come to a, uh, a, one of the three later services, you could do that as well. So lots of stuff going on. Check your QR code. Go to the events. Um, check those things out. Uh, some other things going on that I didn't even mention, but look at those. If I say the name Jim Abbott, does anybody know who that is? Jim Abbott is an American baseball player, and at every level of baseball throughout his life, people doubted Jim. They doubted him in grade school, they doubted him in middle school, they doubted him in high school, and even in college. Why? Well, Jim was born with only one hand. His right arm ended at his wrist. 
And Jim had to prove himself everywhere he played. And, and everywhere he played, people were amazed. He's an amazing, gifted pitcher. In 1988, Jim was asked to be on the United States Olympic baseball team. Uh, it was such an honor for him. He and his teammates, tra teammates traveled to Seoul, South Korea for the games. The team did so well in the Olympics that they made it to the gold medal game. And, where the, and they played against Japan, who is a world powerhouse in baseball. It was a difficult game, but Jim hung in there. He pitched every inning and won, of the gold medal game, and they won the game. It's the first U.S. baseball team to win a gold medal in the Olympics. And Jim Abbott was the starting pitcher. When Jim got home to the United States, he found out that the California Angels had called him. They wanted him to join them for spring training. And so Jim pitched uh, throughout his, I think, 10-year career for, um, uh, for several different teams and won many athletic awards for his abilities. But probably no day was more special than what Jim did on September uh, in 1993. He was pitching for the New York Yankees, and Jim pitched a no-hitter. Um, an amazing, um, people can pitch throughout their careers, throughout the, uh, their lives, and never pitch a no-hitter, and Jim Abbott did. He had a brilliant career. His determination and talent helped him to achieve great success. The fact that Jim only had one hand didn't determine how good he could be in the game of baseball. It just made him unique, one of a kind. Today we're going to learn about the second judge of Israel. Micah started us down this path. We talked a little bit last week about Ehud. And he too was one of a kind and also chosen by God. After the death of the first judge of Israel, Othniel, the people of Israel got caught in what we're calling the uh, sin cycle or the redemption cycle. But one of the, one of the cycles in the redemption cycle was the sin cycle, right? Sin, oppression, crying out in repentance, and then deliverance. And, and Micah did a great job last week helping us to understand what that sin cycle looks like. Remember this, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay. And, and it certainly was true of Israel. It's true for us as well today. We all make mistakes. We all fall short, and we all need a deliverer to help bring us back into God's presence. The second judge in Israel's history, the second deliverer, is a guy named Ehud. Now, I know baby dedication's coming up if you're thinking about what kind of names you might like <laughs> for a, a boy, a masculine child. Um, Ehud, right? That's a good one. He's actually a great... A uh, person in the history of Israel. Uh, Judges chapter 3, if you have your Bible open, let's jump into this text together. We're going to pick up, I think you ended in verse 15. I want to pick up verse 15 again from last week and then continue forward. Judges 3, 15 says, and again, and again, right? The Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud a left-handed man, the son of Jirah, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. So this time, Israel falls away from God. The oppressor uh, is the Moabite king, a guy named Eglon. Uh, the Moabites belong to the same sort of ethnic background or stock as the Israelites. Their ancestral founder or the father of the Moabites was 
Moab, son of Lot. Remember Lot? He was a relative nephew of Abraham. Abraham and Lot left um, their, their homeland and, and set out together. Uh, in verse 12, it tells us that Eglon convinces the Ammonites and the Amalekites to participate with him against the Israelites. So Eglon must have been a pretty good influence in the region. He, along with uh, Moab, invited some other people groups to join them in, in taking over and fighting and oppressing the Israelites. So Ehud goes with an entourage to pay tribute, to try to keep everybody happy, right, in the region. So they're trying to pay off Eglon. But Ehud also has another plan. Look at verse 16. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Now, Ehud, as we're starting to kind of get wind of, is more than just a messenger. He's an assassin. Eglon is more than an oppressor. The Bible says he's a very large man. Both of these things sort of play into the story as we keep reading here in a minute. And I think Eglon has kind of settled into his role and is living off the tribute of Israel. He's become lazy. He's become overweight. So Ehud delivers the tribute to Eglon and leaves with the others. Look at verse 18. It says, after Ehud had presented the tribute... He sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. So the, the Hebrew word that our Bible, our English Bible translates message, actually is the word dalbar, which could mean word. It also could mean thing in the Hebrew language. So follow me here. It's sort of a, a play on words. Ehud says, I have something. I have something for you. From God, but Eglon hears, I have a word from God for you. The something that Ehud's talking about is the dagger that was hidden on his right thigh. Now, let's stop here and talk about this just for a minute. I was listening last week when Michael was preaching, and you guys laughed when he mentioned, or when the scripture mentioned that Ehud was a left handed man. I remember, you can hear you laughing on the video, right? This service specifically. But it's an important part of the story here. It's not just an afterthought or just a, something unique about Ehud. Some scholars believe that when it says left-handed, it means that he was handicapped in some way. He, he didn't have use of his right hand. Maybe he was born that way. Maybe he's like Jim Abbott, born without a right hand. And maybe Eglon overlooked Ehud because he thought he was weak. Others believe that when it says he was left-handed, it meant that he had trained himself by binding. The word in the Greek or in the Hebrew means to bind, or his right hand was bound. And in the ancient world, um, it would be uncommon for someone to be left-handed. Even if you were born left-handed, you would learn everything right-handed. And some people would train, or some people groups, or some armies would train certain warriors to be left-handed by binding their right hands because that was a significant advantage in a battle. If you're used to fighting people who are right-handed, if somebody comes at you and they're really skilled left-handed, it throws you. It's like a left-handed pitcher in baseball, right? Left-handed pitchers are, are more rare than right-handed pitchers, so you have to learn how to hit a lefty. It's like uh, fighting a southpaw. 
right? Uh, you have to understand where that big punch is going to come from if you're in a boxing match. So maybe Ehud could use his right hand because, or couldn't because of a handicap, or maybe he'd been trained to use his left hand. Or what I think, Ehud was just left-handed. <laughs> I just think maybe he was left-handed, right? Whatever the case, it was not just a, a funny thing or a side note in the text. It was his advantage. Eglon was not prepared for whatever reason for Ehud's attack. And if you thought the story couldn't get any wilder, let's pick it up in verse 21. says, I have a secret message for you. Verse 19, the king said to his attendants, leave us, and they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone, verse 20, in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out the sword, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him, and he locked them. So Ehud's attack took Eglon completely by surprise. He got so close to Eglon that he thrust the dagger, sorry, left-handed, thrust the dagger completely into this large man's stomach, and he left it there, which I would also do. <laughs> and let's just say, without getting too far into this, it made a mess, right? <laughs> Ehud then locks the doors to the chamber and makes his way to an escape. Now, this is where it gets, that was a little, um, that was a little graphic. This next part is a little funny to me. It says, after he had gone, verse 24, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. And they waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took the key and unlocked them, and they saw their Lord fallen to the floor and dead. So Eglon's attendants, they go to check on the king, and they think he's sort of in the inner chamber of his room, in the palace, and they think, honestly, they think he's just taking a long time in the bathroom. The text says they waited to the point of embarrassment. Now, I'm not saying this happens at my house, but it could, right? <laughs> Bonnie's knocking at the door. The king, king's attendants are like, he must be in there playing Clash of Clans or something, right? <laughs> Finally, they let themselves in to check on him, and they find him dead. And by this time, Ehud has gotten away. But that's not the end of the story. Keep reading verse 27. It says, when he arrived, while they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sariah. When he arrived, there he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan, and they led to that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. So Ehud's assassination of Eglon 
leads to victory for Israel. The people rally around their new judge, and he leads them to a rout of Moab. And verse 30 says, that day Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Israel, who was under the oppression of Eglon and Moab, now have made Moab their subjects. How quickly things have turned. And the land had peace for 80 years. 80 years peace. All because of a left-handed leader named Ehud. Have you ever looked at yourself in the mirror and thought, I'm just not good enough? You ever struggle with self-doubt? According to several research projects, 85% of us suffer from low self-esteem. That's a pretty high number. That means that most of us suffer from occasional bouts of low self-worth or have our confidence shaken from time to time. And apparently, it's more normal to feel inadequate than it is to be self-confident. If 85% of us struggle with that, then we're on the majority. It's part of the human experience. But what if we simply embraced who God created us to be? Flaws and all. What if we embraced our uniqueness and turned our flaws into assets? For instance, it's a scientific fact that people who are blind develop other senses to compensate for their lack of sight. Right? According to a study published in the Harvard Medical School website, the brains of those who are born blind make new connections in the absence of visual information, resulting in enhanced abilities such as heightened sense of hearing, smell, touch, as well as cognitive functions such as memory and language. Let me give you another example. Highly emotional people can be excellent actors by giving themselves an advantage by using that intensity in their personality to, um, and, their, and, and their emotions for optimal performance. Let me get, think about this. Can you imagine going to work every day with somebody like Robin Williams or Jim Carrey? <laughs> right? They would drive you bananas. But put them on a stage or in a movie, and you can't take your eyes off them. They're extraordinary. I want you to go home with this today. I, I love the story of Ehud, this left-handed man. See, God doesn't see our uniqueness as a liability, but rather as an asset. Ehud was left-handed. And in that culture, being left-handed was not viewed as an asset. It was a liability. And, and maybe he didn't have use of his right hand at all. We just don't really know. But what we do know is this. God didn't see his uniqueness as a liability, but he saw it as an asset, as a way to get done what God needed to get done through Ehud. He was just the right person to defeat the oppressive Eglon and to lead Israel to defeat Moab. Maybe Ehud was more inspiring because of being left-handed. When I was first in ministry, just out of college, I, I just generally loved to be on the go. Like, I took every opportunity to, back in the day, I used to lead worship, and I would go to different um, camps, 
During the summer, I go different places on the weekends, retreats or conventions, and I just couldn't get enough of it. And, and after several years of this, and I just really loved doing these things and being gone and, and, um, and, and leading worship and meeting new people and being on the road, I remember thinking at some point as I'm getting into my mid-20s, headed towards my late 20s and early 30s, I kind of thought, I had this thought and sort of wrestled through this thing in my mind, and I just thought I'm restless. I, I'm never going to buckle down and be serious and get anything done because I just, I just really enjoy this being on the go. See, I thought this part of me, I thought of it as a character flaw. I can't settle down. I can't buckle down. And what I realized as I got older is that it wasn't weakness. It was just part of my uniqueness. That's just who God created me to be. See, I knew tons of people who were not built like me, who didn't like to be gone, right? Who would rather be at home instead of always on the road. And because of that bit of restlessness, my wanderlust maybe, trying new things, going new places, meeting new people, because of that uniqueness, I got to meet tons of people and be a part of so many lives and stories. I still get messages from people who I met at some camp, some retreat 30, 40 years ago. And you know what many of them say? That week where you were, that time, that retreat, that conference, that camp, that week changed my life. Now, I want to be clear. It's not necessarily because of something I did while we were there. there that wasn't the connection necessarily. But that weekend retreat or that camp that I was a part of and that team made a significant difference in a bunch of kids' lives all because of what I once thought was a flaw, but God saw as an asset. St. Catherine of Siena said, be who you were created to be, and you will set the world on fire. Be who you were created to be, and you will set the world on fire. Let me make a biblical connection. Psalm 139, 13, and 14 says, for you were created... For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. See, God knew you before you were even born. Not only that, he's the one that forms you. He puts you together in your mother's womb. Every one of you, hear me, 85% of us, right, struggle with self-doubt, self-worth. Hear this. Every one of you were created wonderfully by God. Wonderfully. You were knit together. Each one of you are unique and designed by God. And that's not all. Ephesians 2, Paul says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So let's make this connection. Not only are you created by God, uniquely made, wonderfully made, but each of you are then recreated in Christ, if you've made that decision to follow Christ, and you're given a purpose. Do you see that? Which God prepared in advance for us to do. Because God knew you, even before you were born, he has given you a purpose that's unique to you. He created a left-handed guy named Ehud 
who was uniquely made for the task that he was given. Think about these people. Noah apparently was a skilled carpenter with an abundance of patience. It took him 100 years to build the ark. Abraham was a gifted leader who had the faith to follow God to a distant land. Moses had trouble speaking in front of people, but God used that weakness to pull Moses' brother Aaron into his plan. Aaron became, um, Aaron became the first high priest of Israel. Esther was put into a key position in the kingdom of Persia, and the Bible says that she was placed there for such a time as this. Think about the many prophets and leaders in the Bible. Every one of them were unique. Not perfect, they were unique and uniquely suited for exactly the purpose that God intended. People like Isaac and Jacob, Joseph, all of the judges, including Deborah and Samson and Gideon and Ehud, all the prophets, all the apostles. And if it's true of this ragamuffin group of unlikely characters that we see in the Bible, it's true of you. It's true of me. Who would have thought that Ehud, a left-handed guy, would make such a big difference? Well, God did. And he knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses as well. And if you lean into what God who God made you to be, he will work through you for his good purposes. I promise you that. Let me give you three quick ways that God may work through your uniqueness. First of all, your unique abilities. Each of you, I believe, if we believe the Bible to be true, God knit us together. Each of you have been given unique abilities that God can work through for his good purposes. I love the story, Exodus chapter 31. Moses has been up on the mountain. He's received the law. He's received um, um, specific, specific instructions about how to build a place of worship called the tabernacle. And God gives Moses some very specific instruction about how to do that and who should do that. Exodus 31, uh, starting in verse 1, says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I've chosen Lazelel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I've filled him with the Spirit of God with wisdom and understanding, with knowledge and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Now, think about this. This this is amazing. God knew the name of the artist that he needed to create the implements of worship that were to be used in the tabernacle and later the temple. He knew what tribe... He knew the guy's father and grandfather, and he knows you. He knows what you are good at. He knows the abilities that you have. So we should lean into that, right? There's a million people in Israel at this time in Israel's history, but God knows by name Bazelel, who was a skilled artisan and craftsman. He knew just the person to call on. He had the perfect set of abilities. Why? God's the one who knit him together. And the truth is, God knows you, and he knows your abilities. Lean into that. Let God work through you. Second thing I want you to think about is your unique giftedness. When you become a Christian, when you, by faith, accept God's gift of grace, God's spirit comes to live in you. And God created you And honestly, just life would have been enough, right? 
He, he breathes the breath of life, and we take our first breath as, as babies, right? And that would have been enough. He, he made each one of us, and, and he knew us before we took that breath. He knit us together, and that would be enough. So God creates us, but then if that's not all of God's love and promise in us, he recreates us in Christ, and then he gifts us by the Holy Spirit that, that now lives in us. He gives us life. Then he gives us Christ, and that would have been plenty. Then he gives us a purpose. How do you know God loves you? He didn't just give you life. He didn't just give you new life. He gives you a purpose in Christ, one that he had planned for you since before you were born. 1 Corinthians 7, 7 says, Paul says, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. We're all gifted differently. In the same way that God uniquely puts us together, God gifts us uniquely as well. We're all given a unique gift from God and that, that God can work through for his good purposes. Thirdly, think about your unique experiences. Sometimes our uniqueness is found in our experiences. Some of, some of us have been through things that have shaped us into who we are today. And God can work through those things as well for his good purposes. And a lot of these things are good, Right? The camps that I went to, the people that I met, the things that I learned, the songs that we came together, like all of these experiences uh, kind of speak into who I am today as a Christian. And those are all good things. The way my parents raised me and my grandparents loved me and the people in my neighborhood and, you know, all of the experience that I've had throughout my Christian life are mostly good. But some of the most powerful experiences are actually those difficult experiences, that we've been through. And God can work powerfully through those as well. Some of those difficult experiences are, are because of our own choices. Right? We, sometimes we make bad decisions. And sometimes we have bad experiences because of those, but we can learn from them, can't we? Some of those experiences, the difficult things that have happened in your life, not, are not your fault at all. And God can work through those as well. Let me give you just a couple examples. Maybe you've been through addiction. Difficult experience. Probably some choices you made. Maybe you've been through abuse. Probably not your choice. Maybe you've been through divorce. Maybe you've experienced grief or anxiety or failure or loss or loneliness or job loss or trauma. See, God can work through all of that. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. See, I think God can work through our experiences, even our difficult experiences to help and comfort others. And here's the thing, and maybe that thing which has kind of, you've been living with for years that happened to you or, or some experiences that you had that were difficult that maybe you brought on yourself, maybe you've been living with these things, that thing that has maybe controlled you or you think has defined you, God can turn into something good as you help somebody else. 
And instead of that thing defining you or controlling you now, maybe for the first time in your life, now you have control of that thing as you use it to help somebody else. That's the redeeming power of God. I remember years ago, I talk about this from time to time, and it's still hard to talk about, but it's probably the most real example of this in my life. Um, Many of you know my parents moved here after we had moved here, and they were both in, my mother was especially in poor health. She ended up in a nursing home, and in 2016, she passed away of Alzheimer's. That was in April. That, That anniversary is coming up. I think about it. In June of that same year, having taken care of my mother for 10 years with Alzheimer's, my dad's health had failed. He died the same year in June. Without any warning or illness, my wife Bonnie's father died that same year in November. So in the course of about eight months, we lost three out of four of our parents. That's a difficult experience. We all know that we'll lose our parents. That's kind of the way it's supposed to be. But three out of four in one year is is a tough year. People ask me all the time, was COVID the most difficult year in your ministry? I'm like, nope. But you know what? I'm a better counselor. I can understand uh, when I get the call that someone's loved one or parent is on hospice. I, I know where they've been or I've been where they are. I've experienced that, and I I think I'm a better minister now because of those things. If I had a choice of the way to do it, I wouldn't have chosen that way. But I understand grief. I understand as much as I can. When when you are going through those things, I understand it, and I hope that I can be of some help to you at some point. See, God can work through even our most difficult experiences And you know what I found is I get a lot of joy not only helping people and and maybe having been through, I think I have a lot more credibility now than I did before 16. I've been through, I've experienced some things, I've matured. But those times even remind me of my parents and my father-in-law. And I get joy out of that. I miss them. But it reminds me of how powerful and beautiful They were in my life. Be who you were created to be. Even with your flaws. Even with your difficulties. Be who you were created to be, and you will set the world on fire. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for uh, this message, Lord. When I sat down to study and prepare this sermon, I had no idea what I could learn from a left-handed guy named Ehud. But Lord, you've moved in me and in this message in a way that's been powerful for me. And I pray that these words, your words, have fallen powerfully on everyone here. Lord, none of us are without flaw. But Lord, we are all, especially in you, with great purpose. Lord, you loved us, you created us, you knit us together, you saved us, and you give us purpose. And that purpose gives our lives meaning. And Lord, that is significant for each one of us.
So Lord, I just pray that you help us to lean into who you've created us to be, that we could just set the world on fire. Lord, help us to remember our uniqueness isn't a liability, it's an asset. So God, I just pray that you you help us to live out every day with that in mind, that we can be all that you've created us to be. We pray this through your son, Jesus.